0: Hey friend, this is Shelby, host of the Resilient Podcast. I believe that every woman should have what she needs to feel confident. Each experience looks different, but that doesn't mean we have to be alone. What if as women, we came together and had real conversations that strengthened each other to go deeper with God and go further in life? I don't know about you, but that's what I'm here for. Let's do this together. Hey, guys. Shelby here with the Resilient Podcast, and I have a special guest with me today. It's one of my closest friends, Tara. Hey, Tara. Hey. Hey, everybody. And um, she's one of my friends from college. We met at North Central University, um, what, 2012? <laughs> Literally 2012. <laughs> That's so crazy. We were different <laughs> people in 2012. Holy cow. <laughs> yep. But um, Tara's an amazing friend of mine, um, and we've – uh, walk through a lot of different things in life together and just even over the years uh, me being far away because Tara lives in Minneapolis um, just every time I've come home we've been able to connect and kind of pick up where we left off and so I just love that about our relationship of, of just growing together and having relationship uh, over a long period of time just wherever we are at in life and I love that about you Tara but I'm really excited today um, we're going to be talking about racism and um uh, and institutional racism, gentrification, a lot of different things that um, have come up over this past summer. And there's been a lot of racial tensions. And I guess, I, I guess the right way to say it is like, there's been a light shone on injustice that has been taking place for a long time. And um, the conversation has finally, I feel like been brought to light to a lot of people where before it was here and there. And so this is something I just really wanted to discuss with Tara. Tara's, Uh, was in Minneapolis when everything went down this summer. And um, just she has so much wisdom and everything you share on uh, racial issues has been so like full of wisdom and grace and just so helpful for even me learning as we walk through these conversations. And so I'm excited to have her share today, but I just want to give you a chance to introduce yourself, Tara, and share a little bit about you and your husband and kind of what you guys do
1: yeah cool thank you for having me um i'm excited to be here so yeah um like and if you guys hear me say Shelley instead of shelby it is a college nickname it doesn't make sense and i fully understand that but
0: just, yes
1: to us she is shelly and that's just it, it just cannot change
0: <laughs> so. that's so true I, I forget about that so yes. yeah that's my nickname in case you guys didn't know
1: it makes no sense. It just we it just removed the B out of your name. I'm so and sorry. it's the anyway. same length.
0: It's not a shorter name. It's the same. No, I don't <laughs> even to this day don't know how it happened.
1: But uh, anyway, I don't know.
0: Thank you for having me, Shelley. Yes, I'm excited. Um, my
1: name is Tara Hollingsworth. Um, I live here in Minneapolis with my husband Chauncey Hollingsworth and our dog. Our dog's name is Lex, and Lex. Um, yes, she's so sweet and she's a lot of fun. And my husband and I have been married for three years. Isn't
0: that wild? That, that is wild. Wild. We but at the same for- time, I also feel like you've been married for 10 years. So I exactly. feel like it's both. Yeah, it's definitely both. Is we've been together for like seven. So Yeah, time. see, pretty close.
1: Yep. So um yeah, we've lived in Minneapolis since him and I both moved here. He moved in Minneapolis, uh, or to mo- to Minneapolis in 2010, I think. And I moved here in 2012. And so we've both been here ever since. And I currently work at my church, Sanctuary Covenant Church, where I've been for almost six years. It'll be six spring. Now, that to me is crazy. Crazier. Yeah. Yeah. My husband, he um, is a basketball trainer. He owns a company called Hoops in Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, He teaches like elite basketball skills and training, but also like character development, biblical wisdom, all those things. So that's how we exist in Minneapolis. Um, But yeah, it's been a really, really, Tough summer, I think. Mm -hmm. I think parts of me, I'm still on autopilot a little bit because everything happened so quickly. It was like, okay, there was a, a, you know, this worldwide pandemic. So everything went from like 100 miles per hour to zero. And then, you know, George Floyd was murdered and everything went from like zero to 100 because there was so much community need after that. Um, So basically, I, I know we'll get into it more, but what that looked like for me practically was there were a lot of really peaceful and incredible protests that were happening. Um, and we can get into this later if we want to, but there's, um, a shift when protests turn into riots and they're very different protests and riots Mm. are very, very different. Um, and that shift was very destructive to our communities. It was destructive to a lot of small businesses. It was destructive to South Minneapolis where George Floyd was murdered and North Minneapolis where I live and where my church is. And so there was one specific night where, um, uh, riots had broken out, and we had expected them to just because of talks and kind of what was going on in the pattern of things. There's also a pattern of riots as well, and so um, we uh, prayed over our church, and every other business was boarding up. Uh, but we just kind of felt like that wasn't true to who we are, or who we, you know, who we were, who we have been, and so we decided that we weren't going to board up our church.
0: Um, and uh, you know, long that building is brand new. It's and brand what? new, and
1: it's all windows.
0: I was going to say it's glass. From what I remember. So like, Uh that's like a big deal.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. It's easy to get in. You just got to shatter a window. I mean, and like pick one, there's 80, you know? Yeah. So anyways, so we decided not to board up our church. We prayed over it. And I just like felt this godly confidence. It's like, you know, like Psalm 91 said, like, you know, it, it can happen to the right and the left, but you know, not us. And so we prayed over it. Our entire street, you know, for about almost a mile was completely destroyed. Businesses were looted, burned. Uh, broken into and everything, and our church wasn't even touched. And so it was just such an incredible thing. Now, the issue is that we live in a food desert. And if you guys are unfamiliar with what a food desert is, basically people in our community don't have access to food and walking distance. We don't have a Target in our community. Um, we don't have a Walmart in our community, nothing like that. We do have a, um, a grocery store. That grocery store was looted, so they closed it down. So that means now we're in a complete food desert. And,
0: so and that's still today, like there's not anything else that's popped up? Um, um, we'll talk about that. <laughs> For the most part.
1: For the most part, yeah. Okay. And so basically, you know, we had that was an immediate need that we had to do as a church because we were oh, right yeah. across the street from the grocery store. And so what we did is we actually said, you know what? Well, we're just going to host barbecues and we're going to feed our community. People can come up and grab food whenever they want. Um, that somehow turned into a food distribution all summer long. So we had, from that moment, just asking people for barbecue supplies. That's all we asked for. We had people coming in with truckloads of supplies and food. I mean, our church became a warehouse overnight. We literally had water bottles up to the ceiling. Like, we had an entire room filled front, back, center, up and down with diapers and wipes. And, I mean, we just had everything. Our church became a grocery store. And so that's how we functioned for the summer. And that's what I'm just kind of coming off of is between, like, protests and that. That's kind of that was summer 2020 for me. Oh, Obviously absolutely. we were all masked. None of us got <laughs> COVID. I just want to put that out there. We were just to make
0: to- sure everyone knows. Yes. No, we were serving really up
1: to 500 families a day and we had no, no COVID cases and
0: no tracings back that's to our incredible. distribution of COVID. So God, wow. God showed up. Yeah. You. Totally. Well, and for those of you that don't, No, I would assume most of you would know what took place in Minneapolis this summer. But George Floyd, a black man, was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. um, And it was horrible. And I, I mean, it went viral. So I would assume most of you would know. And then as a result, there was peaceful protests of black people and white people alike, but people standing up for like, this cannot continue to happen. And then that quickly turned into people taking advantage of a situation and people choosing to loot and um, just so many things where it became like burning buildings and just a lot of um, like other things mixed in as like, not not what the original heart behind the protests were. And Mm -hmm. So there was destruction of Minneapolis. And the sad part is that hurts um, the black community so much, especially in certain areas, like you're talking about, Tara, where uh, they don't have access. People do not have access to um, things that they need within walking distance. And a lot of people don't have cars, right? Like they don't have the ability to just get there easily. And so those are things I think um, as suburban white people we don't think about. We are not aware of like, no, that actually matters. You can't just hop in your car and go get groceries from a different store. And mm-hmm. um yeah, I think that's such an incredible need that you guys met. And I loved just watching from afar because I'm from Minneapolis. For anyone who doesn't know, that's how Tara and I know each other. Um but like this is home for me. And watching from afar what was going on and just seeing what you guys were doing, Tara and your church actually shifting into like, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. Like we're going to love people in what they need, not just because the Bible says we love people and we're Christians. And so technically we love people, but we're actually going to do what our community needs and be present for our community. And I know that has always been the heart of your church and you guys have done that really well already, but it was so cool to watch that be literally exemplified. And it really show like shone a light on that. Um, Aspect of who you guys are. And, and I was just so proud to see that as your friend, but then also just to see the extension of the body of Christ in that way. So yeah, I can imagine it was a crazy summer for you guys. And, um, but yeah, it was so, so needed what you guys did. Um, Yeah, but we want to just talk about this issue of racism and racial injustice today. And um, I I guess one of the questions I want to start with, Tara, is what does racism look like uh, on a daily basis or like a consistent basis for those that maybe won't know? Because I found in conversations I was having with people and I live in Canada in a rural area. I would say there's not a ton of interaction with black people on a regular basis outside of cities. And that's common even in areas of the United States and many different countries all over the world. And so I I found a lot of people were, were just saying, oh, I actually genuinely did not know racism was still an issue. Like, mm-hmm. sure, here and there, but I didn't know it was as consistent as it was. And so yeah. if you could just even share, what does that look like today in 2020 on a consistent basis? Like, what does racism look like?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny that you ask that because um, I had a or I have a really close friend and her and I became uh, close in college as well. And she asked me that a long time ago. You know, she was um, I I don't know if I was her first black friend. I don't know. But she was asking me, you know, what you know, I, I know racism exists. I believe that it's true, all those things. But how does that change your life? Like, how do you live differently than me? And that was a shocking question to me because I was like, how do you not know? Mm. But then I started to realize like, well, cause you don't have to. And it is an aspect of privilege to live in this world and not see both how racism exists in day-to-day life, but even the ways that you may be participating in it and not even knowing that's how deeply it's rooted into our, our country. And so what I tell people sometimes, um, in just like a a small way to see it is um, if you go to Target or anywhere and can you find products for your hair? Probably. I mean, of course, can you find a foundation to match your skin tone? Mm -hmm. I mean, of course it's made for you and you have all these messages constantly. And that's just a, a small one. You have all these messages that are constantly reiterated to you that this is not for you. And that stems all the way back from, you know, white drinking fountains, black drinking fountains, you know, like you have so many messages that continuously tell you that these things aren't for you. And you have to find you have to go somewhere else to find what mm-hmm. you're looking for yeah. that's presented in politics in the way that people look in representation in TV shows that you lack some type of importance and that you are not normal. And so what people realize is that or people what people don't realize is that they think what they think is normal is whiteness and is white culture. And so you think it's normal to go in and get a foundation shade. That's your whiteness showing up because not everyone can do that. And some people with deeper skin tones have to like either order online or search high and low or, you know, just hope that some new inclusive company comes out with something that's for them. Um, And so that's just a very, very small thing. Um, that doesn't show up as violently as other ones. My husband having darker skin, um, he experiences it way more than I do, because both because I'm a woman and because my skin is lighter than his. Um, but I have genuinely seen the ways that people have feared him just by looking at him. And you know my husband, like the happiest, kindest person
0: of all oh, yeah. time. Like, <laughs> literally. I think he, you know how like some people have like a resting mean face. Yeah. Chauncey has like a resting, like happy face. <laughs> right. Right. He is <laughs> like he's really- so kind and warm and welcoming. Yes. The absolute kindest person
1: I've ever met in my life. And everyone knows that, but a lot of people don't care when they see him, they see a black man and that means something in their mind. I've seen um, him uh, walk down the street. I've seen women scream, literally scream Because he scared them and not startled them. There's a difference between someone startling you and someone scaring you. Um, I have noticed him being followed around in grocery stores, being accused of stealing. Um, I've been accused of stealing multiple times. I've been accused of, you know, selling drugs or looking suspicious. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Like you don't even... It's literally in every aspect of your life, there's traces of racism and, you know, microaggressions, like people talk about. I mean, the stuff I experienced in college, the things that people said to me, I'm still, like, unpacking that. Like, I cannot believe you said that to me. Yeah. (laughs) There was, like, so a small example, things that I don't know if other people have to deal with. Um, My first day on campus, a white guy comes up to me in front of so many people, like, in front of my floor, his floor, all that kind of stuff. And he goes, Um, hey girl, what's your name? Boshan. He said front yeah. invite everybody, right? And I'm just like, my initial response was to look at everybody else and be like, Y'all let him talk like that. Like y'all yeah, don't like issue everyone with has no like, issue with that. Yeah, like that is that is not okay because that assumes you you see my skin color and you assume that I'm ghetto, you assume that I'm this caricature of a, a video or a meme that was like funny, like that's your experience with black people, and you mm-hmm. don't even understand how marginalizing that is, hurtful, like isolating all those
0: things. Oh, yeah. It's just everywhere. It's everywhere. Totally. And I I would say I became aware of that when we adopted my younger sister because she's adopted Mm -hmm. and she's black, right? And um, it was actually like there were different – Things of racism when she was little where like they wouldn't if we'd ride the bus certain people wouldn't want her to sit next to them or things like that Mm -hmm. that are like more aggressive when you think of racism like that's what you would think of and i remember that like throughout my childhood and being very aware of that but then um as she got older and started to shop for things that is a huge way that i realized like whoa the world is built for white people because Mm -hmm. she couldn't find foundations like and i had never thought about these things because i don't have to worry about it until she yeah. was then purchasing products for her hair, pu- purchasing products for her face. Like even I think I saw it on uh, Instagram recently, like Band-Aid finally made other colors of band-aids. It's like <laughs> the even that right. it's like it's the right. default band-aid is beige or like white. And it's like and they call it skin things. tone. Yeah. No, literally. Mm-hmm. And that's in color crayons and all these people for the first time. And it's and I thought when I saw that I was like how are we just now recognizing this in 2020 like what and just realizing and i i found with my sister that was something that was so eye opening for me and it was yeah like no this isn't okay we have built a world that is for white people and that stems back from slavery and and everything too of like intentionally making black people feel like they do not matter or they don't have identity mm-hmm. or they're not worth as much and just even seeing that in reality, but then also too, like I know, on your social media, you guys have shared, and Chauncey shared, your husband has shared different things uh, of what he's experienced, and I, I think, um, I think there's a lot of white people that don't even think black people actually get pulled over by cops more, and you know, like they oh, really yeah. don't, but. That is really, truly happening. And there these are not exaggerations or, oh, yeah, just you just assume everything's racist towards you. I think that's something I hear a lot like or have over the past my whole life, right? Where, oh, you're telling a Black person, well, you just assume that because everything's racist. And that's the language, right? So it, again, reiterates that, like, this is an exaggeration or this mm-hmm. isn't true or, no, your experience isn't valid. And I think we need to stop speaking like that and we have to start to address these things as reality because they are yeah and
1: even that is is an aspect of privilege that you think that Mm -hmm. you know something about an experience that you've never lived and you think that you can like type or or prescribe um Or or give an answer to a problem that you don't have to live in and that you can just be like, you know, something that people have literally have fought, have lost their lives over, have, you know, sat in churches their whole lives and prayed about, have died for all these things. And you think that you have an answer because you don't want to hear about it anymore or you think that you can you literally can set yourself up against people who have researched their whole lives with phds and there's evidence of actual systemic racism and you think that you have the ability and the power to tell someone that it does not exist or that or that that's not what that was and the thing about racism is that it's a language and and when you when you know a language you understand it and you know how to interpret it so for Mm -hmm. example i mean you're bilingual or trilingual like you know, if if you hear something in a different language, you know, there was times in college I'd be like, Shell, you know, what did you just say? What does that mean? And mm-hmm. you say, well, this is what it means. And w- what if I were like, no, it doesn't. How would I know? I don't speak that language. Yeah. so racism is like a language. And when I hear it, I know what it means. Mm-hmm. So when people say certain things to me, I know what you meant by that. You, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know yep. what that is. Other people may not have caught it, but mm-hmm. I know what that was. And that's racism. And I know it because I've spoken it and I've heard it my whole life.
0: hmm Totally. No, that, and that makes so, so much sense, you know, because it it is reality and, and going, you can't speak into something you've never experienced and, and tell someone it's not true. And that's, that's actually such a good analogy is like, it is a different language. Like you are more aware of it than me or the next person because you've walked it and you've received it. It's not the first time you've heard that. Where for me, it's like, okay, if I heard that I could easily be like, oh, I think you're taking that wrong. Give them the benefit right. of the doubt. Or you're going, it. no, I've done that before. I've given the benefit of the doubt, oh, but yeah. I know what this means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's a really good analogy, Tara. Um, I also wanted to talk about the difference between racism and then like institutional racism, because I think that's something that people don't understand the difference between those either. If you mm-hmm. want to just share a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. And this one too, I'll share a little bit, but I want to encourage people to do some research because there are so many incredible resources now, um, uh, mm. you can find there's so, I mean, and if you don't want to read or, you know, listen to Ted talks or whatever, I mean, there's Netflix, like there's documentaries, tons of them.
0: Oh yeah. Um, but, and they're so
1: informative. Right. So what I will share is when <clears throat> it became illegal to own slaves, um, and, and this is just an example of how institutionalized racism exists. Um, you, uh, you know say so people slaves were freed okay long story short slaves were freed um, and then there was also the um, patrol that had the sole purpose of finding and capturing runaway slaves that patrol ended up becoming the police department and so now instead of having slaves um, there's been black people who have been criminalized um, and that's a whole nother conversation but black people have been criminalized and now place in um, prisons. Watch uh, the 13th documentary. Um, It has tons of good information. Um, There's also some books that I can have Shelly link for you to just um, learn a little bit about mass incarceration. It'll be really helpful. Um, But, and now there's, you know, tons of black people and brown people who are in the prison system, which kind of is like a revolving door. um, But Mm -hmm. also there's um, people in the prison systems who are working for very, very little wages, but also working for free. And so Mm -hmm. what is that? It's slavery. Yeah. So slavery still very much exists, it just looks different. Slavery really wasn't ended, it just um, it just evolved to a certain thing. And so that's one part of institutionalized racism. Um, there's also different parts of insu- institutionalized racism when it comes to um, poverty and wealth and homeownership and um, gentrification, like you mentioned, redlining. There's so many different aspects to how racism was actually built into the system and built into the way that this country country even
0: functions. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, Sheldon, if, if you want me to get into well, that. But. I'd love to go into, because I, I think one big thing is, uh, racism in, uh, the redlining and gentrification mm-hmm. and all of that. So I would actually love to move into even homeownership and what that looks yeah. like, because I would say that's a huge thing as I've done research that I've seen is a major setback for mm-hmm. why this continues. And it's why it's, um, it's not just like, stop being racist. It's like, no, this is the institutionalized piece of it. I would say, would you agree that that's one of the bigger oh. pieces is, is ownership? Oh, for sure. For sure.
1: Um, So home ownership is um, the top contributor of wealth. So when you look at people who attain a certain level of wealth, um, one of the main common denominators is home ownership. Um, So what would happen back in the early 1930s is that when Black people wanted to own and buy homes, they would get denied by banks. They would get denied for loans. Also, um, there was this thing called redlining. And what that was is that people would literally, there's maps you can look up today. People would literally take red pens and redline certain neighborhoods, and they would keep black and brown people in a certain neighborhood and disallow them to move anywhere else because they wouldn't be able to buy those homes or get loans for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an incredible way that racism has like continuously kept down. Yeah. 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 And so it, it specifically, it's been really, really bad in Minnesota. Um, I think redlining, it was. It became illegal in um, 1968. It became
0: illegal. Which is um, really crazy how far, far removed that is from like from ending slavery. Like if you think about it. Like 1930s, even you were talking about 1930s and then 1968. That's mm-hmm. so far removed from yeah technically when race or not racism, when slavery was ended.
1: Yes, and think about think about generational wealth. A lot of wealth is passed down. And mm-hmm. so, let's say um in 1960 I think my dad was born in like 1969 or something like that. In the 60s, he my, I think my parents were born. Mm-hmm. Um and so If it were, if it was super hard for my grandparents who lived in this era to own a home, how could they even pass that on to my dad or my Mm -hmm. mom? And so my parents had to you know, in, in some way, or my dad, at least my mom's white, but my dad had to some way somehow assume this new education and find out how to own a home, how to do these things. Um, even though redlining was illegal, it was still weaved in
0: other ways. People, you, you were still getting, you know, denied for loans and all that kind of stuff. Well, I even heard a story. I forget the name of the family. And I think it was actually Minneapolis where one of the first black people to purchase a home in a white neighborhood. They were so... Abused for like four years. Like people would riot outside their home. They'd throw things in their windows. They would spit on them when they'd come out. Like they'd break their car windows, all that. Mm -hmm. So, like the first family to actually step out and do that, they were abused so bad. They actually moved back into a black or brown neighborhood because they were so miserable. So, it's like, yeah, technically the law allows it. Technically, there's not redlining, but people are still making it impossible for a black person to purchase a home in a white neighborhood.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so like, you know, how how are my parents going to pass that on to me? And so that's why my husband and I are so intentional about owning is because it's it's a it's a contributor to wealth. And in Minneapolis. So Minneapolis was like um, for years and years has been named like one of the best places in the country to live. But the craziest thing about that is it also ranks as one of the worst places for Black people to live. So it can go and be broadcast as the best place, but also has the largest disparity in the country between Black and white wealth. So for every white, the average white family and the average Black family, an average Black family in Minneapolis makes 44% of what an average white family would make. Wow. And there has been so much setback and there's such a a disparity and people, you know, it, it just makes me so mad when people say, you know, black people are lazy. All you have to do is, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But when there's a system and there's power that's holding you back and holding you down. Mm-hmm. from attaining much else when you have to talk with lenders and people at a bank who are racist and who ask you racist questions. I mean it's it's happened to me even before I owned with my with my lease. My husband and I our first apartment we weren't approved for because the um the guy assumed that that my husband was a drug dealer. I mean and that's very illegal. Like we could have sued him, but we Oh, for people. sure. We weren't going to do that, but I mean it's it's not it's not done away with. We still deal with these things when we're in a white neighborhood now. My husband still gets looks. He still has people stare at him, you know, clutch their purse, all that kind of stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's so prevalent and you can mm-hmm. see it if you want to. But the, the thing about, you know, white privileges, you don't have to.
0: Yeah. And what would you say? So even I would love to go into gentrification and, and what that is doing, because I would say like with our millennial generation, that's become a huge thing. Right. And so do mm-hmm. you want to just explain kind of what that looks like?
1: Yeah. Um, I'll give an example. Okay. So there's a neighborhood in St. Paul, um, which is the Rondo neighborhood. Um, Minnesota decided that they were going to put a huge highway through um, St. Paul. So um, I-94 was cut right through this Rondo neighborhood. And it's, it's a historic you know occurrence that when people do want to create new developments, they'll do it right through um, a a community that's either impoverished or black or brown or something like that. So I ninety four went straight through the Rondo neighborhood, um, and one in eight black families lost their home. One in eight, because wow. of that. And so it's really hard to recover when actual institutions are taking things away from you because they can. A lot mm-hmm. of businesses were shut down because of a highway that plowed right through it, and it's like, oh well. And so that's like one aspect of how gentrification works. But also, for example, um, there's a blueprint that some people have. And I didn't realize this until I started really paying attention. Um, I went to school with Shell um, at a school called North Central University. And there was a lot of white people. I think when I went there, it was like 7% um, people of color. Yeah. And I think um, 5% black and then 2% Hispanic and Asian. And um, so I observed a lot of white people (laughs) a lot (laughs) of the way that people did things. And a big thing I noticed is that a lot of white people would graduate, you know, get married and then own homes. And I would be so confused. I never even imagined owning a home. Like, I never even thought about that. I just thought I was going to live in an apartment forever. I don't know. I just didn't even think about it. Um, But I started noticing where they were buying homes and they were buying homes in North Minneapolis, which is a predominantly black and brown neighborhood where I live now. And I was like, wait, why, why did you buy a home there? I didn't understand what was happening. And then, and I was like, and that home sucks. (laughs) Like, why are you buying that house? I did not know. I did not know this was a thing because I I just, I wasn't taught. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that they were buying these homes for $60,000, putting $50,000 of renovations into it and selling it for triple the price. Mm -hmm. And so now not only did you just benefit off of this poor community but also now you've put it at a price range that's so hard for people to own Mm -hmm. in their own neighborhood and so you came in this community bought up the affordable housing and then you put money to it benefited off of this poor community and Mm -hmm. made it almost impossible for other people who live in that community now to buy it yeah and so
0: well that's displacing people right like this is happening in most big cities like in the United States, I'm sure here in Canada too. But what I've heard is that it's just, it's displacing people, you know, and it's making it so somebody who maybe grew up their entire life in North Minneapolis or in a neighborhood like that, um, they literally cannot afford to purchase a home by the time they're even of age and maybe have money to purchase a home. They can't even do that in their own neighborhood or what where they call home. So they're forced to go somewhere else Mm -hmm. or business is the same thing, right? Like because everything around them is becoming more expensive then it forces like all the prices up for everything in a neighborhood like that as everything becomes higher in value and it makes it so people what end up homeless or have to move? Or what does that look like?
1: Yeah, well, I'll give a specific example. So um, something that is in a lot of different neighborhoods is Section 8. And Section 8 is um, a program where people who are maybe less income, um, they get government assistance to pay for their housing. Mm. And uh, the thing about Section 8 is if you you know, um, are getting assistance from the government, they pretty much can tell you where you're going to live. And so there was a lot of um, Section 8 housing in, in a certain neighborhood. One of my uh, youth students was living in a Section 8 um, housing apartment. And they decided that they were going to, or, or the owner was going to sell it. And then um, the new buyer what didn't want that apartment to be Section 8 anymore. And so everybody has to move out. Like they have to- oh, an entire apartment building. Yeah. They got to go because mm-hmm. someone wants this because they see value in it and they want to make money off of it. So now you have to go. And one of my youth kids in particular um, was going to our church, and he had to move all the way across, like to deep, deep, deep suburbs. So you mm-hmm. go to new suburbs, and now you're the only black person. And now you know you're you're away from your community. Um, he was on track to, um, like, he had a, a bunch of different recruits for his school. He was doing really well in his school, and now he has to go try to break into a new school with new politics and hopefully get a scholarship at this new school. Maybe when he was already on track to get one at the old school. And so there's so many different. Um, aspects that people don't realize? Or what about his mom? Where is she going to work? Because let's mm-hmm. say she takes public transportation to work. What if she gets displaced to a place where there's no public transportation? How is she going to make money? I mean, there's just there's so many pieces to the puzzle. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that I know it's there.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it has to be talked about and people need to be aware of it. And um, I would say, even for our generation to become aware of the consequences of those things. Because I think a lot of people just see the front end of it. Like you, like you talked about seeing these married couples buy a house for super cheap, make it exactly what they want. And they don't think about the consequences or the people that are being displaced or, sure. or the things that are taking place that they're not aware of, right? I think as mm-hmm. people we're naturally so selfish, we naturally think of like, how does this benefit me as opposed to what is this doing actually to the people around me? Yeah. Um, It just
1: sounds smart. It sounds like a great idea. Like, oh, that's so smart. Everyone does it. Mm -hmm. It it does leave impact. It leaves
0: impact. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I think that's, yeah, like that. I think the housing and all that was something that I've really been like becoming more aware of, of like, wow, Mm -hmm. this is a huge issue and, and, and how that affects and perpetuates racism because it's not just a, well, the American dream, anybody can do it. Sure, in theory, yeah, that's true. But there's so many things stacked against the black community Mm -hmm. because of um, this stuff that has taken place for many, 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 many years, right?
1: Yep. Um,
0: And I want to say one
1: more thing about that too, Shell, if you don't mind. Um, You know, there is that idea that anyone can work up. And yeah, you can. uh, But something that I've talked with, not just with my husband, but a lot of black men is you have to be so good at what you do in order to get the same opportunity. Um, Not only do you have to be so good, but your character has to be even cleaner. Um, Mm -hmm. Your integrity has to be so much better for people to even give you a chance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think of different leaders in our country and what they get away with that Mm -hmm. other Black leaders could never get away with. Mm -hmm. So my husband carries the weight and I carry the weight. I understand we don't get as many mistakes. We can't have as many slip ups. We have to be above reproach constantly because there's a there comes a point where you realize like people think this way of me. And so in order for me to get the same opportunity, I have to be spotless. And Mm -hmm. that's a burden that is really heavy. And -hmm. that sometimes I'm like, forget that, (laughs) you know, like I think different people fall on different ends of the spectrum. But sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to go out of my way to impress, Mm -hmm. I'm a human being, like, and, and, and I'm a, and also a black woman. And that, that there's nothing, that's not offensive. It's not offensive to be black. It shouldn't be, it is, but it it
0: shouldn't be, you know? Mm -hmm. And so- Well, and you shouldn't have to prove, basically what I'm hearing is that you have to prove that you're not bad, you know, like you have to prove that you're actually good, that there's actually nothing wrong with you and not just like where you should be taken at face value, like just like anyone else, right?
1: And personally, uh, I'm in a place where I'm done with that. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to try to go above and beyond to, like, disarm people so mm-hmm. that they don't think that I'm loud. Or, you know, as a black woman, like, you're angry or you're this. I'm not going to mm-hmm. try to make sure my tone is so, like, palatable for you so mm-hmm. that you don't think I'm an angry black woman. Like, I'm, I've am i lived that way for a while. And I'm just – I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. I'm no, just going to,
0: you know, talk how I talk. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's yeah. that. What would you say um, – Is the impact even of because I think another thing would be if you're not seeing someone achieve something that looks like you or is like you, it's hard to picture yourself going after those things. Would you say that plays like a big part in in, again, perpetuating racism and institutional racism or what would you say on that?
1: Yeah, I think representation is is so important, and I'll just use an example. You know, continue with this one, even two in, um, let's say, in, in institutions like universities. So where we went to school, was I seeing any black professors? Like, no. I think maybe we had like two, two mm-hmm. or three, like stuff like that. You you need to see other black people having power in situations because they deserve it. Mm-hmm. And black women are amongst the most educated people group in this country, but somehow underrepresented in so many different jobs. Mm-hmm. So if that doesn't show you that racism exists then, you know, I don't know what will because there's credentials and there's um you know all this ability and capability yet you're still underrepresented. Mm-hmm. And so seeing black women be successful and on TV is important for me. And
0: I I want to continue to see that No, that's really good. Is there anything that you would say um, is one of those things that is not being talked about that you, as you think about racism in this whole conversation, that you're seeing across the board is not being talked about that should be? Yeah. Um,
1: This one I think is the hardest for me because what I feel is not being talked about is the incredible racism that lies within the church. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hardest part for me as someone who believes like deeply in Jesus and someone who loves the church and, and is employed by the church. Yeah. yeah. Like this is what I've dedicated my life to. And I have been more scarred by white Christians mm-hmm. than pretty much anything else. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there needs to be some type of acknowledgement of what's happened in the church when it comes to race, and I haven't been seeing that, you know I've been it, it was really hard for me if I'm being honest when all this stuff was happening, um you know, George Floyd had just gotten murdered, and this is not an isolated event, I just want to say because Minneapolis has been through a lot and I, there's also a specific documentary on Minneapolis that I'll also send to you, shell, right. um, but you know, Jamar Clark was murdered right down the street from my house a few years ago. And mm-hmm. Philando Castile was murdered. Both of were murdered by the police. And so there's so much history. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Jamar Clark was murdered very close to the school that I went to, mm-hmm. um, there were people who, like... And Michelle, remember you came to visit and I was like super jacked up because, and I was so sad. I was like crying in a coffee shop because I was oh, so yeah. like, I was so shocked at the way that, you know, Christian people were responding. Yes. Yeah, and when Jamar Park was, was murdered, I had people and friends, close friends telling me the right way to protest and the wrong way to protest. And, mm-hmm. you know, people I've never even heard talk about race, um, tell like tell me that this is a conspiracy, that racism isn't real. Wow. Um, and, and these are Christian people and these are friends of mine. And it it was so, yeah, it was Mm -hmm. so harmful. And now Mm -hmm. you see things happening, um, you know, with with um, George Floyd that you just can't deny. I mean,
0: that's just blatant. I don't care. I don't care what you believe. Like that. Yeah, there's no way around that. Like people can't face that and try to paint it a different way. Right. And I see the same
1: people who ridiculed me for protesting about Jamar Clark now writing Black Lives Matter and coming at other, you know, and I'm not saying that there's not room for growth. Definitely want to leave room for growth. But I think that we're we're missing a piece of accountability where there needs to be repentance. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big portion of it. Repentance of what, you know, so many black and brown people have been put through. And now that you finally decide that you want to open your eyes to it. Now you like expect me to like, thank you for Mm -hmm. speaking up now. No, no, because you, that was very, very hurtful. And that marked my whole college experience of all the racism I endured those four years. And so it's just, it's a very strange thing. And, I think the church wants everyone else to repent, you know, repent for your sins, repent for your sins. But Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, we need to be in a place where we've realized that the, you know, the quote unquote world has one-upped us in compassion and care and justice. Mm -hmm. That's very sad. That is very sad. And I think we
0: need to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. No, that's really good. And yeah, I guess that would even lead me to the question because I think that's something I'm seeing is as a whole, as a generation, we, this is popular now, you know, it's, right. it, it's seen as like, okay, you're obviously against racism. Like, oh my gosh, posted on your story. Like mm-hmm. I'm a good white person, you know, like all right. this, like, I just feel like it's, it's taking something that like you even said, this was happening long before, but now the culture has shifted where now it's not okay in cultural eyes. And it's something that has to be addressed in culture's eyes as our generation. Um, and again, like obviously wanting to give room for growth. It's not that like that isn't genuine, I'm sure for people. But I guess the question would be is I I want to know what you would think for what can people practically do about this because Mm -hmm. there is it's one thing to like post it on our instagram and to say something and um to speak up that way but like you said there has to be accountability or like that repentance like you talked about but then also like what can be done like as a just standard normal like person every day in our everyday life or just ongoing what can be done to fight against racism racism and institutional racism
1: yeah I think I get that question a lot. Um, and I feel like I always have. They're like, okay, now that I know, what can I do? Um, and I don't want to jump to that so quickly um, for the sake of this podcast, of course. Like, we have yeah. to you know. Yeah. but in conversation there, I think that we need to live a little bit more into the uncomfortability, especially if you're new to the conversation and new to the table. There's so much you have to learn. And um, it... I don't think that the solution is just not right there for you. And so I think it's going to be unique if I think that the first thing you can do is acknowledge the racism in your own life, acknowledge the uh, microaggressions that you've said, um, the times that you've said really intensive things to people um, have made them feel inferior. Um, I think that that's an important thing. Acknowledge, um, lament, because it deserves lament. Um, Repent. And I think, listen, I think continuously educate yourself on what people are saying and what people are talking about. And then I think after people do that, after they've found some education, I think people then want to lead. I would discourage that. I think that at that point, I think you're ready to follow. (laughs) So do your own research. Don't burden the Black people in your life to be your sole educator, unless you want to pay them. (laughs) But do some research because it's out there and people have already done that work for you. So go ahead and, you know, read some books. Um, There's documentaries. There are incredible resources. Look into those and learn and educate. Um, Follow. So if other people are, you know, starting organizations, specifically people of color, serve well in that area, But then I think the most important thing you can do, obviously, besides like prayer and asking the Lord for wisdom, is talk to other white people.
0: Mm.
1: Because I know that it is very, very hard for lots of black people to have this conversation. Mm. And a reason for that is because we've experienced so much gaslighting in it. Um, Imagine imagine this. Imagine telling your most traumatic story to someone and the whole time they make you feel like you're lying Mm. or that. Um, what you're saying is not true. You're exaggerating. It's conspiracy. You're you're believing something that, you know, that's false. And that's what this conversation can feel like a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say talk to other white people because this conversation can be really, really hard, especially when there's, when you're in a place where it's not safe and you feel like you're defending your own trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one wants to feel like that. And I've, yeah. I've felt like that so many
0: times, yeah. you know. Well, and we don't ask <laughs> Most people to do that when they are sharing trauma, we're not like, prove it to me, Mm -hmm. you know? So then this would be the same, you know, why would we ever think that would be okay?
1: Yeah. It's wild. It's absolutely wild
0: to me. Yeah. It's so deep. That's the thing. It's so deep. Yeah. Well, and like, again, I have never experienced racism, so not from firsthand, but just even watching with my sister because- racism the trauma that you probably experience is so different not different but like it's so identity based you know like it has the ability to mess with people's identity and i saw that with my sister right like Mm -hmm. we saw things with her where she actually to get to the place where she loves herself fully it took so much fighting for herself and she's done that and i'm so so proud of her but um to even be okay with her hair and And her skin and who she is, because racism is literally attacking somebody at their core of who they are. It's not like attacking something they do or something that they believe in or something they value, it's attacking somebody's core. And so, just even like trying to wrap my mind around that and like the things kids already have to overcome, Mm -hmm. and then you throw that in for people of color, and that's. Like, oh, it just is like, you're right. It's something to lament over. It's something Mm -hmm. to like weep over and be genuinely broken about and not just like, okay, let's move on, like fix that problem. But like, it is so deep. Like, you're yeah, saying.
1: it is because, um, you know, even like you mentioned with hair, hair is such a big thing. So, you know, all the times where, you know, younger black girls or, or biracial girls or whatever, you know, people they talk about your hair all the time and they, you know, say, oh, your hair is dirty or it's nappy. Your hair is gross, all that kind of thing. The way it grows out of your head, people call it dirty or crazy or yeah, crazy. Your hair's wild or whatever people say. And for those very people, and I'm just giving you my experience, Mm -hmm. those things happen. And then you see those people on stages proclaiming and yelling that you're a child of God and that you're, you know, you're fearfully and wonderfully made and you're chosen and you're perfect the way you are. And then you get off that stage and you ridicule someone because of their hair or because of their skin color and people see it. That's the, and it's so, it's so deep because to wrestle with that, Mm -hmm. specifically in a Christian context, Mm -hmm. is. It's so, so hard. Mm-hmm. and it gives, it gives you such a bitterness and it's hard to separate, you know, like, you know, God's people and God, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, sometimes yeah. when people are the mouthpiece of God and they're, you know, are telling people this is like, you know, Holy Spirit, speak through me, all that mm-hmm. on stage. But then afterwards are saying horrible things. Yeah. You know, it is, it is a hard. very confusing thing.
0: Yeah. And I can't imagine, yeah, differentiating those things and going, no, this is not God.
1: <laughs> this yeah. is not
0: who he is. Right. And mm-hmm. that's way. Um, yeah. Are there anything like any other things you would like to add to this conversation before we kind of wrap up? Uh, um,
1: I don't know. I would I would just say especially i don't i don't know where people are coming from on this podcast but mm-hmm. if you are someone who truly believes um in God pray about it um, follow his wisdom and see the ways in scripture that God fought for people who are marginalized see the ways in scripture that God fought for women and that God the ways that God fought for people even with darker skin because it's in there We're not just, (laughs) this is not, this is not a new thing. Um, And so truly notice how Jesus acted towards people um, that other people wanted to brush off to the side. I mean, it's fascinating the way that Jesus truly cared. Um, He didn't make people prove their trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that's what I would say. If you don't believe in God um, and you just want some type of hope um, or you just need some type of next step, just, just be watchful. Just be watchful, because I believe in God, and I think He's going to show you something. <laughs> yeah, no, but just true. just be watchful. Yeah, be watchful and
0: listen. Just listen and learn. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, this has been amazing. I I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, and um, yeah. Just there's so much in here that is such so helpful, and just so um like you just carry so much wisdom, and I just appreciate the way you articulate and the way you communicate. Um. And just your willingness to help people understand, like that's really, really amazing. And so I appreciate you, Tara. I love following everything you do in life and just like, yeah, your heart to actually continue to share Jesus with people and continue to um, fight for people in the midst of all of this and that's something i've always seen you for your close friends but then also for the people who are pushed to the side that you're always willing to fight for people and what you know is right and i really appreciate that about you so thank you so much tara um thank you thanks for having me all right well we'll talk again soon thanks for hanging out today if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. I also want to let you know that I've written an ebook called Refreshing Your Prayer Life. This is a tool that I'd love for you to have access to. You can download this free ebook by following the link in the episode notes below. Let's chat again soon.